This podcast was recorded on stage at BAFTA in London in front of a live audience at the Lancat Live event on 10th of February. Guy Opperman and I talk about whether pensions work for ordinary people and what he's focusing on changing. We also touch on the question of how the state pension would be treated in the event of Scottish independence, which sparked a lively subsequent debate on social media among opposing parties with an interest in this issue. is going to kind of give a perspective from the kind of government and political view of where the pensions are really working day to day for the people they were set up for. So, Tom and Guy. Minister, I, I, there were rumours that turned into reality earlier this week about a cabinet reshuffle. So I was slightly anxious that by the time we got to today, you'd have been appointed <laughs> sort of minister for, for Brexit opportunities. Or, or, or something. So I, I'm genuinely, I'm, I'm a, a pleasure to see you anyway, but I'm delighted that you're still Minister for Pensions and Financial Inclusion and welcome and thank you for being here. No, thank you. I think chances of me, I choose my words carefully, being promoted, I think, in this reshuffle were our old friend Slim and Nun. And uh, the first rule of politics is survival. So you keep going, I think is the best description. But listen, I'm pleased to do this. This is the first event I've done for quite a while. I've stopped doing these events to a certain degree as well, so delighted to try and do one of these again. And you, you survival, you are you're nearly five years into the job now. With two years beforehand as the whip as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So certainly in terms of Minister Pensions, I, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few months. If you, get, ah, if you get to the 10th of June, you'll have set a new record for tenure as Minister for Pensions. But be interesting to see that that finishing post might be quite a long way off in some ways. <laughs> so. Well, how can I put it? Uh, yeah, it might be. <laughs> so look, um, the, 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 the exam... Every day seems a very long day. Yeah, yeah no, so <laughs> things, things were... The exam, the, the exam question for today is, look, do, do pensions work for real people? So I'm going to go there in a minute. What I wanted to do was just kind of start with a bit of context because we started off this conference today looking back actually over the last 20 years. And over that time, we've seen a huge amount of change just in the pensions context. So we've seen the complete decline of private sector DB pension provision. I wouldn't agree it's a complete decline. Personally, I think it's in robust shape following the Pension Schemes Act, but I take so, your point. So, so in terms of future accrual going forwards... Um, I, I and, take my... yeah, so, Okay, so, so the future is looking pretty DC from here. Uh, there's still, I mean... <sighs> You're almost selling out the Treasury now. So, I mean, the practical reality is there is, you know, compare the amount of money in DC, compare the amount of money in DB, they're chalk and cheese. They're miles off. And everyone gets terribly excited about DC because it's a brave new world and lots of these people here are making money out of it. But at the same stage, DB still has a massive role. How we manage it, how we do funding codes, how we do all of those sort of things is a enormous thing. And... The reason why we talk about BHS is because transfers are a massive deal. Scams are a massive deal. And regulation, whether it is British Steel, BHS, and things like that, still is a huge part of it. I spend a lot of my time in. I had a 45-minute session with David Fairs only yesterday. Yeah, no, understood. And when you look at the, you look at the data in terms of people's retirement incomes at the moment, yep. I think in this industry we tend to underestimate how significant a portion of people's retirement income the state pension delivers. So typically, on average, it's around 50% of people's retirement income. And then there's that big chunk of occupational pension income. That is, as you say, 
pretty much all coming from DB still today. Yeah, the, the Brave New World clearly is DC. Uh, there's no question whatsoever. And the great thing about this job is you're making 30 to 40 year policy. So I couldn't think of anything I'd like to do less than be Minister for Culture or Paperclips or whatever, because, um, or what, what did Jim Hacker do? Minister for Administrative Affairs. <laughs> In, or whatever the thick of it, example of it is, but you are making very long-term policy, which makes it, A, really interesting, but also trying to shape proper determinations going forward. Okay, so we're moving into a world of DC. There are lots of challenges there. I was interested to hear you talk recently about self-employed and the HMRC trial on that one and looking at auto-enrollment in that space. Um, there are lots... Going forwards, I think, certainly for the industry, there's been a lot of focus of attention on, on things like drawdown and the decumulation process and how we manage all of that and do that safely. But I want to come back to that kind of exam question and just get you to, to, to expand on that. Do pensions work for real people? Not enough. Can, can you expand on that? Yeah, so going back to the previous session, I thought it was fascinating that the final graph was a triangle in which there was no mention of the customer or the client. That, that really surprised and disappointed me. So... Uh, the the practical reality is that the customer, in my view, and, and I, I get entirely why we've got where we've got, because we've worked on inertia, particularly in DC, and the Turner Commission and everything from that uh, rightfully made the view that that was the biggest and best way forward to drive forward change in behavior. And, you know, that's one of the problems that we have in self-employed is that individuals, even though they have access to capital, by way of earnings, are not actually saving in a pension that they should be doing. But at the same stage, it has really struck me that the individual, so I'll put it another way, the business talks to itself a huge amount, but it doesn't necessarily talk to its client and its customer and the consumer and my constituents nearly enough. That would be my takeaway. And I am trying to change that because we have this wonderful product that everybody supports that is inaccessible, putting it bluntly, on a whole host of ways to the general member of the public. And if you're going to go down the DC route, which we are, then you've got to make it more accessible. You absolutely have to. And on a whole host of different ways, some of which you'll be aware, obviously dashboard, simpler statements, you know, costs and charges are I defy anybody to understand the cost and charges review, which, by the way, DWP did as a member of public. It is impossible to comprehend. We have a cost and charging system that is utterly incapable of price comparison. We have a, a product that is not sufficiently accessible to the wider member of the public. If you can do it for insurance, your mobile phone, your bank, why can we not do it with pensions? So, okay, I'll just pick up on that cost and charges since you've raised that now because, I mean, that's still an open question, particularly for the auto-enrollment schemes. Do we condense them all down just to one standardised set of charges? In my view, in the longer term, yes. I know that's exceptionally unpopular with, if anyone hears from people's pension, I realise you hate me intensely. So that would be exceptionally unpopular with a variety of different organisations. But longer term, I accept there are huge complications in the short term. I'm not so naive as to argue that this should be done tomorrow but in the longer term you should be looking to make this as simple as you possibly can so that an individual member of the public who wishes to understand their costs and charges can do so 
and then can either price compare or have a better understanding of what value looks like. Okay, and separately, you've got a piece of work going on around value for money. And, and, and by the way, I was really struck looking at Mike's slide earlier on, where he was talking about the consumer duty, but the subject headings for the consumer duty look very like a slide you could have put up with the phrase value for money over the top of it. Same basic metrics of, you know, what do the charges look like? What's the, what's the member communication look like? Sure. You know, what are the adventure uh, returns uh, you're uh, delivering? Uh, uh, I didn't want to pile in any more than I did pile in anyway. So listen, cost and charges in DC have been the key metric, for want of a better word, since 2012. And rightly so, and no one disputes that. But that has to evolve, in my view. And there has to become a, a different environment where cost and charges matter, but they are not the fundamental driving force of this process. So it's definitely not my job to be an apologist for the industry, but I will just kind of play devil's advocate for a moment. So the counter-argument to that is, and you know, we've brought in this ban on fixed charges for, for pots of under £100, so you, know, you don't get that risk of the really small pots getting eroded by fixed costs, so that's good. And the counter-argument is, look, we can, by allowing a variety of charging structures, it actually allows us, the industry, to serve customers with smaller pots more effectively, more efficiently. What we then need to do is to translate those charges into a transparent, simple communication to the customer. So it might be slightly complicated over here, but what you're getting over here, the, the impact is, is explained in a simple way. And, and they would argue that that's why you should continue to allow a, a variety of charging Don't worry, shapes. they've made that very robustly to me, and I totally agree with it at the present stage. The question you've got to ask yourself is, Will cost and charges look exactly the same in five to ten years' time? And I can't believe there's a single person who would genuinely argue that that is appropriate. Now, uh, th that's why I make the point. You don't do pensions legislation or as a minister for tomorrow. I'd love, I wish I could. Trust me, I wish I could. You do it over a five, ten, twenty, thirty-year process. I wouldn't have gone down the route of CDCs if I didn't think this was a long-term product and I know there'll be people here who are saying, why haven't you fixed it and set it all up together already? Unless I felt that in 5 to 10, 15 years' time, CDCs would be an alternative. So on costs and charges, clearly Nest and others and Peoples and various other uh, people, Adrian Bolding will be jumping up and down at this particular stage, will argue, well, look, we have a particular cohort of clients who we have to look after in a particular way. And I accept that. But that cannot continue longer term such that the client genuinely doesn't have any understanding of what they are paying for. Because at the moment, it is being run for the purpose of the business rather than the purpose of the client necessarily, or that is the impression that the clients get. Okay, thank you. So staying with that question of kind of engagement and understanding, and I was, I was really struck by the narrative you gave to, to the Working Pensions Committee not long ago where you... Kind of you need to get out more, you I, really I, do. I, I, I follow all your speeches. So um, the... Um, the you, you drew this thread through various policy initiatives and you, you painted this picture that the, your purpose, you know, perhaps I agree, but, but the general sense was, look, what I've been doing is, is just making it easier and simpler for people to engage with their retirement savings. That was the kind of message I got from you, whether we look at dashboards, simple statements or statement season, you know, consolidating small pots, all these things serve that end goal. So we're on this transition journey from, you've already referenced auto-enrollment and the Turner Commission and the default of, look, just stick everybody in, don't think about it, to this world as we go forward through time, as people get older, they have to kind of engage with it, make choices around investment contributions, and then ultimately what they do with that accumulated pot of money at retirement. So 
that challenge of, you know, you've talked about the midlife MOT and I mentioned the work MAPS is doing. We've seen businesses like Money Alive and Guide who are trying to kind of intersect with that. How, how, do, we, how do we go forwards from there? What does the industry need to do to create that magical world where everybody's informed and making good decisions? So I think that there are two bits to this. The first is, as always, with any business, with your life, with whatever you're trying to do, try and work out what's going to happen in five to ten years' time and then plan accordingly to deal with what's going to happen in five to ten years' time and shape the future. So if you're going to have a cohort of individuals who have a DC pot that is getting ever bigger, who are effectively have a steady-away state pension but have a DC pot on top of that, how do you navigate them through that decumulation pathway? How do they have greater awareness? How do they switch and consolidate as they quite clearly should be doing? And how do you have a market and a you as businesses, how do you look at your particular businesses and say, do I really think there'll be hundreds and hundreds of DC providers in five or 10 years time? The answer I can assure you is definitely not. You are going to be consolidated by fair means or foul over a period of time. Now, so that's kind of where I think the market needs to be looking at it. I think decumulation is going to become such a bigger issue, of course, and and good people who can provide a proper managed pathway for customers. And again, you, you need to remember we're all talking about constituents and customers, I think will prosper. And at the moment, I don't necessarily see that happening. Now, I arrived and I took, I had worked in the DWP under Baroness Altman and Steve Webb, both very interesting characters, for a period of time as the whip. I had worked for five years contributing to a variety of different parts of the debate in the House of Commons. I'd set up two banks, and I felt very, very strongly that this was an industry that was not customer or consumer-focused and that was inaccessible. Now, that doesn't undermine, in my view, the great joy of the Turner Commission and the automatic enrollment and everything like that that we are trying to drive forward. But I defy anybody. I did a I did a do at the brewery. Some of you would have been there. And the brewery is this massive room in the centre of London. And I asked a thousand people, went back when a thousand people could meet together quite happily without thinking, oh he looks like he's got a cold. And I asked a thousand people, please stick your hand up if your mum or dad or your grandparents genuinely understand their statement. And two people put their hands up. And they were all pension professionals. So simplifying statements, obviously dashboard, which you know obviously is a marathon, not a sprint, but we are getting there. Trying to make it more accessible so that you take this amazing product, which we all support, and try and bring it into the 21st century, kicking and screaming, is seems to me a titanic struggle, which hopefully one gets to your destination of New York don't rather than hit an iceberg. So I want, I want to come back to the dashboard in a moment. Before we do... You and I spoke about the statement season back before Christmas, and you know, you've pushed this agenda really hard. You've been very vocal in your view that this idea of people actively engaging with their retirement savings statement, talk, talking to each other down the pub about it, you know, that's it's been slightly overinflated, okay, yeah, I, I think is a bit harsh. But so, I tell you, listen, do so, I think that people need to have greater awareness of their pensions? Yes. And do I think they do have it at the moment? The answer is no, I don't think they do. My, my, my question, I guess, is where are we going to go next with that? Because I, I know you were um, talking to the industry. Is, you know, where, yeah, where, where, where do we go with that? I've got to choose my words carefully because I can see some of the people who wrote to me are here. So I want to encu- – I'll, I'll try and put this in a politician's way. I want to encourage 
greater engagement by the industry in ensuring that the customer has awareness of what they've got. Now, the two finest events I go to every year are the Pension Geeks, Lord love them, who are a quirky group, to say the least, but are amazingly good at engaging people with pensions. And, uh, and I stress I have no beef or axe to grind or benefit here, but the Scottish Widows Pension Awareness Road Trip, obviously they haven't been able to do the road trip for a while. I've been on several of those, and I have seen the degree of change that happens with random groups of people who turn up. Uh, when If you haven't seen the bus where it goes around, they literally turn up, and it's a bit like a a very dodgy, aging rock band. We're going, hello, Watford. Um, it's good to be here. And they like set up, obviously. The, the transformation, though, is the business they talk to or the individuals they talk to, the transformation in those people's understanding of what they've got and what they need to do and how they're going to understand what their future is, is off the charts. I've never seen anything like it in four and a half years in this business. So you take those two examples and you try and come up with a model whereby you try and encourage people to have a better understanding. And you talk about AE, so we all know the stats that, you know, within a short period of time, you're going to have 11 AE pots, probably with 11 different providers. And that's probably going to get even, that'll get bigger and bigger as it goes forward. So are you really going to have an incomprehensible statement turning up on a different month every single month of the year? So on January, February, all the way through to November, and without any real understanding, with all of the providers saying, don't worry, you can understand it really well because we give you a different cost and charging structure, that is a recipe for disaster. And that's not the way forward. So you have to intervene and take action there. My idea was to amplify upon the Pensions Awareness Day with a statement season. Now, clearly, the industry hate that, partly because it would require a particular piece of work. It would be... I mean, there's an argument about whether you do this online or whether you would do it uh, in writing. I think that's been slightly conflated in the in the telling. And clearly, it would require people to respond at that particular time, even if you had a two to three month window or things like that. But that is a work in progress, I think, is the best and politest way to put it. I'm going to meet the PLSA and the ABI and the 15 providers who are very keen for me not to do a statement season very soon and we'll obviously listen to what they've got to say and we'll have a good discussion about it. What I do think, if you if you run a pensions organisation, you, you probably have to put your hand up to this, but do you genuinely feel that the customer has full awareness of their pension if they are with you? Stick your hand up if you do. I don't see, I think a single hand is going up. Now, you may all work in different sectors, so that may be your saving grace, but if you're watching online, I couldn't see a single hand. Now, I get that we are in a default business, but at the same stage, that cannot be sustainable long-term, particularly with a DC pathway and a decumulation pathway that needs to get better. So you're looking for the industry to step up and, and kind of meet you halfway, come up with some answers, something around the... So the, the, it goes back to, but it goes back to the previous conversation. So, and the, the previous debate, and, uh, you know, we all hate the regulator. If there is a common perception, which you just proved it to me, that the customer doesn't have a sufficient awareness of the product. And if there is an absolute acceptance that longer term, the customer really needs an awareness of the product, either industry fixes that, I would love it if industry did, but if industry is not prepared to fix it, then government has to step in. That's the practical reality. 
either industry fixes and calls out and stops the BHS or the uh, British Steel situations, or government has to step in. Now, the government is very keen not to step in. We'd rather industry fix their own problems. Trust me, regulators would far rather you fix your own problems. I'm only doing dashboard because industry wouldn't do it themselves. So I want to come back to the dashboard in a moment, so put a pin in that. But, but from what you've just said, I want to go on to, I've been really interested in the work you've done around ESG and the challenges you've put into the occupational pension sector there and, and the way you've kind of pushed the industry to, to kind of step up and, and, and adopt you know, TCFD and so on. So I've also been really interested talking recently to businesses like Tumelo and FNZ who are playing this role of connecting the end customer, the members, the, the, the man in the street, the ordinary people we're talking about here, with the investments that the fund managers are managing on their behalf and to try and re-establish that relationship. You know, this is, this is what shareholder democracy used to look like. So is there a role for further regulation in that? Or do you, what, what you now see the industry doing, do you think that, that, that's working? So contrary to popular belief, I really don't want to regulate you. My personal view is that if ESG is being done right and if the customer is being properly looked after, why would government need to intervene? So, and I slightly take the view, you know, the UK doesn't do lots of things very well, but we definitely do ESG extremely well. There's no question. We are light years ahead of most European countries. And in my personal view, the ESG reforms have landed extremely well. I'm still, you know, we're the first in the world to look at the social element and that is complicated for obvious reasons and governance needs to improve in various ways. But the practical truth is ESG has landed well and is being implemented well and provided we can get, you know, metric reporting, Paris alignment, green taxonomy right, uh, which is big stuff but not impossible, then I would personally want to keep that and just and leave it alone. You then overlay on top of that TCFD uh, and it, again, we're the first in the world to do it, which is a burden for these guys. But at the same stage, it's an opportunity. And it's definitely an opportunity for the City of London, UK as a whole, because I'm certainly going around the world saying, we want you to come and invest your money here. We want you to be looking at the City of London as a person, who, an organisation that is at the front of the queue and is really well organised. So my slight point is, I wouldn't want to regulate that space more. And, you know, regulation is so difficult. I cannot overstate it. I always laugh at the, I mean, you saw it on some of the responses there. Oh, FCA are useless. They don't do this. Or why haven't government acted here? Or why haven't government done this? It, is, it takes such a long period of time for regulators and government to act because they are obviously using your money. They, there is a statutory process. You have to consult. You have to respond to the consultation. You have to get cross-departmental right round, which means every single government department has to agree. You then have to fight for and bid for and get parliamentary time. And then you have to persuade 650 members of parliament and a very quirky bunch of the House of Lords that what you're going to do is the right thing to do. That Those are so many hurdles that you just I can't overstate how difficult that is, which is why, you you know, A, you need a long period of time. Lot, you know, I look at simpler statements. was an idea that I, I had... Uh, midlife MIT were ideas that I had in 2017, 2018. They're only now coming into force now. It yeah. takes a long time to do government action. And, and with the simpler statement stuff, you know, people like Ruston doing all, a lot of the yeah. heavy lifting. the man's a legend. Forward. So 
Uh, let's, let's just talk briefly about the dashboard because I, I know a lot of people are interested in it. I know some of the people in this room were on that huge consultation call that the DWP did a couple of days ago. Uh, I ducked that. To, to, I was really pleased. To talk us through the, 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 the consultation process. It was, it was immensely helpful. So, you know, for the last few years, there's the dashboard's coming, the dashboard's coming, it's coming over the horizon, it's coming over the horizon, still not here yet, still not here yet. Well, look, actually, it feels like it is properly happening now. And there's now that challenge around, around data cleansing and the industry having to kind of step up and actually do, do the hard work to, to, to deliver on it. So, but it feels like a lot of that work's still to be done. So I'm interested in your, your perspective on where we've got to with the dashboard. Well, it's happening, definitely. Clearly, one would have liked it to go faster. Clearly, there's a whole bunch of things. But again, slightly, if you want to change the world, look in a mirror. And there are plenty, plenty of people here there are plenty of board members and financial directors of very big players. I think one of the sponsors today, one of their people said to me, there's enough sponsors that you don't know who it is, um, that said to me that we're not going to spend a penny on advising our clients or ourselves to do any dashboard cleansing, data cleansing, until such time as you pass the legislation. And that's the attitude of far too many people. I shouldn't have to do dashboard. It makes total sense for the industry. It's really good for the consumer. and uh, But, of course, government has to step in and do it. That is the difficulty. And the moment government has to step in and do it, it's clunky and difficult. I think you did a very amusing tweet, obviously, in inverted commas, pointing out that that means I have to get the agreement of Treasury, DWP, cross-government, FCA, TPR, FRCS, Lord Lovem, and various other people to get this over the line. That takes a lot of heavy lifting. And to be fair, Chris Curry and others are doing a phenomenal job driving forward. I forgot map, sorry. And driving forward a very, you know, cross-government, cross-departmental, cross-regulator project. But, you know, is it the right way forward? Of course it is. It's the right thing to do. And, you know, will its first iteration be all singing and dancing? No, it won't be. But, again, we're making 5, 10, 15, 20-year policy that will drive forward significant and real change and open pensions will follow and you know the moment your data your data is properly up to speed and not the neolithic form that some people have at the present stage then the ability to serve the consumer better and to have a more interoperable system and to consolidate and to do all the things and solve small pots and all the other stuff kicks in but if you don't have good data you can't do small pots you can't do other stuff so you have to get the data better. Do you think, so, so you mentioned small pots there, and it's one of the things I wanted to touch on. Is, is the small pots problem going to solve itself through those other initiatives that you've already talked about, or is there further intervention needed to make that happen? Okay, I'll give a politician's answer. We're not going to legislate on small pots before the next general election. That's because uh, it's impossible to get primary legislation in the next, I don't know, whatever the next 18 to 26, 28 months is. So that won't happen. And I also slightly, your bandwidth to fight, you know, I have about 20 different projects as pensions minister from obviously state pension, DB, DC, and all the sort of uh, what one person described as all the plumbing of all these various bits and bobs, whether that is small pots and others. Your bandwidth to fight a particular battle and say that is the most important thing that I want to fix is limited. So you know, I've done certain things on small pots, and which we've discussed, and I've got an industry working group. And to a certain extent, and my thanks to everybody who's on that, 
to a certain extent, let the industry try and solve it because it's a problem for them. They all they all get it. But at the same stage, you can do stuff. In my view, better data, wholesale consolidation, and then things will probably flow thereafter. You may have to legislate in the end. But, you know, if we had far, far, far fewer providers, then small pots becomes a much, much easier problem. And if you are doing a consolidation and an individual is able to consolidate through dashboard and is an, an, an organizer are able to providers are able to consolidate through the wholesale consolidation and they can move the data around then everything flows from there but that's why data is everything okay thank you for that so let's come back to you talked about the challenges of passing legislation and mm. I, okay i know so, so i was and i was really so i mean you you, you spoke very movingly at about Jack Dromey recently, and uh, I know you had a good working relationship with him as, as your kind of shadow for, for, for a number of years. And uh, th- that challenge of synthesizing consensus, not just with you know, your fellow travelers, but maybe people who don't necessarily agree with your methods or even your destination sometimes is part of the challenge of politics. What was really striking about the original Turner Commission was we got that consensus. Everybody signed up, this is what we're gonna do. So I guess I've got a couple of questions around the, the A2017 review recommendations. You know, how much consensus is there? Uh, and you've talked about the challenges of legislating on it. You know, are we going to see legislation this side of a general election, or can you just, just not make that promise now? Um, and, and how much support have you got for, 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 for making those changes? Well, let, let me do the easy stuff. So is there cross-party support from all major parties? I mean, I'm quite sure. Caroline Lucas of the Greens would support it uh, as well, but I haven't actually asked her, to be fair. Is there cross-party support for the 2017 AE review? Yes, definitely there is. I think your wider problem, though, is you know you cannot escape from the fact that this is a burden on business and this is a there is a consequential impact, whilst it's adored and loved by everybody who works in the pension industry, but there's a consequential impact upon both the man and woman in the street, and also on business. Now, there are other departments who have very strong views on that. And there are also competing forces, whether that is, you know, anyone who's an employer will know that the uh, living wage, minimum wage has gone up. Anyone who's an employer will know that they're about to pay national insurance increases over the April period of time. And those are taxation or incremental increases to business cost and personal cost that are deemed by government to be more important in the grand scheme of things. Now, that's part of being in a collective responsibility government. You you don't exist in a silo. It's no different from a family. It's no different from running a business. It's no different from any of these organizations. You've got to get a collective decision behind that. And you add in Brexit, whether you're a fan or not, and COVID, both of those two things are seismic economic events, the impact of which uh, on business and also the individual consumer is very large. Now that has consequences. You've got to, you can't, you know, it's really easy to say, oh, do the 18, 2017, 18, 2017 review, it makes total sense without looking at the wider political, geopolitical, fiscal consequences for individuals and businesses and the fact that we're doing two major upheavals in the last four years. I mean, it's been a quiet time in politics, as you know. So, That's my sort of very long-winded answer to not answer the question. I still remain of the view, though, that the 2017 review will happen and will be legislated on before the next general election. Okay, thank you for that. When before the next general election, I'm not quite sure. There are, 
I mean, if, if you are really sad and you listened to the debate on automatic enrolment, which was held a couple of weeks ago with my good friend Gareth Davies, watch his name, he will go very, very far, very, very bright. He raised that, as does Rick Holden, my neighbour, and who's doing great work on this. And there is no doubt that there is that cross-party support and there is a real drive to get it done soon. And you can do it. You can do it. You don't need primary legislation, what I call primary legislation, which is sort of, you know, the Secretary of State introduced it. You can do it by a private member's bill. So I've managed to get the GMP stuff done by a private member's bill this year. So I've persuaded a lovely lady called Margaret Ferrier, who is the independent SMP. She was SMP, then she did a particularly silly thing on COVID. She now is an independent. So I persuaded her that she would do what's called a government handout bill, which is on GMP. Now, it's hard work, it's heavy lifting, you have to navigate on Fridays that piece of legislation, but we're going to get GMP over the line on the 25th of February, and um, the consequence of that is that I've managed to get it by another means. So there are various ways you can do the 2017 review. Okay, thank you for that. So I appreciate this touches on broader stuff that goes kind of beyond DWP remit, but just can you talk to us a bit about pension fraud? Because that's an issue that a lot of people I know in this room and watching are concerned about, who feel that, you know, why isn't the government doing more on this? You know, what, what can we do to stop, stop this? And by the way, I, I, I had a phone call earlier this week from, from a nice young man who tried to persuade me to give I saw it on Twitter. Bank, I follow you on Twitter. Details. It was very impressive. So um, uh, I can only apologise for that. So, no, um, no. So, um, yeah. so what is government doing? So I think there are about three key things. So I would look at the Pension Schemes Act, where we obviously did the red flags, we worked with Margaret Snowden, the PSIG, and various other organizations in absolute hand in glove. I had repeated meetings with Margaret Snowden, lovely lady though she is, and to try and get a red flag system that everybody was comfortable with. And with Stephen Timms and with Jack and others to go, all right, well, how, what can we do in this particular context? So I think we have done a lot in that space. That's now in play. And I think... By and large, we have addressed the sort of, I'm, you know, this is a, I'm going to do an overseas trade or I'm going to, you know, all the stuff on DB transfers that we all know about. So I think we've done good stuff there. Obviously, earlier I passed legislation on some bits of cold calling, which is difficult. You know, you can't stop a organization setting up in Bangladesh or wherever and then dialing into this country. You can't legislate for that absent a sort of UN approach. That's difficult. But I think where there is a, a proper debate going on, and I am very strongly in one space, others are not in this space, is in terms of particularly the role of Google, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, these various organizations who, I really choose my words now, um, who are deliberately allowing, they would probably say it's not deliberate, I disagree, they are allowing, probably put it, put it that way, patent fraudsters to advertise a fake Aviva or a fake whatever to take money from all our mums and dads and grandparents. Now, I'm certainly not on Google's Christmas card list or Instagram's Christmas card list because, in my view, it's a very simple thing. They should be liable for the consequences of what they advertise, just like a newspaper is. Now, that is a proper free speech, how do you regulate big tech problem, and which successive governments, the Australians had a go at it not very successfully a, a while ago, 
The online harms bill is something that is, we've just done pre-legislative scrutiny in government. Pre-legislative scrutiny, just so you understand, which means that you take a possible bill and you then debate it as if it was a hypothetical, and then and that shapes the final version of the bill. And the bill is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, partly because you know we're trying to address the obvious stuff like child pornography, um, certain sexual things that you just don't want to allow on the internet and processes by which the internet is regulated. But at the same stage, it is an amazing thing and there is a free speech and if you choose to engage with this, it's your money, your capability. That's a very tricky issue. So I'm very strongly in the spectrum where I would happily regulate Google and others way more robustly than others. But it's a collective responsibility and Secretaries of State for Culture, Media and Sport ultimately run that particular piece of legislation and we are working and continuing to discuss with them how best to do that. There is other stuff that you can do, which is you can beef up Project Bloom, you can do more with the Fraud Action Task Force, you can get PSIG, you know, I think when I first started this job, I didn't even know that PSIG properly existed and was properly a player, but I definitely do now. And people have definitely, that's a, that's a group that has really done great work bringing to the attention of government, look, there's a problem over here, you need to make a difference. And we talked, you know, the previous session talked about trade bodies. When trade bodies are good and really engage and come to government with solutions rather than just, we've got a bunch of problems, then I think you get real outcomes, which are very good in my view. Okay, thank you. I'm conscious we're kind of probably pretty close to lunchtime now. I do just want to pick up on one more thing, um, which is state pension, and just a hypothetical scenario for you. Let's just imagine for a moment that there is another independence referendum for Scotland. We've heard in recent days representatives from north of the border suggesting that the British government will pay state pensions for Scottish citizens. So just... They here, won't. The, 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 okay. It's not going to happen. So, I mean, listen, I heard um, Ian Blackford and Nicola Sturgeon and I think her name is Kate Forbes say that was if Scotland becomes a foreign country that the British government in the form of the Welsh, Northern Irish and English population as represented in the House of Commons would pay the state pension on an ongoing basis of a foreign country, it's not going to happen under any circumstances whatsoever. And more particularly, if you look at page 144 of Scotland Forever or whatever the SNP document, I think is the technical term I should be looking for, which was their manifesto for independence in 2014, I think it's page 144, or paragraph 144, specifically says, as of 2014, that the Scottish National Party accept that in independent Scotland, Scotland will be liable for their own pensions. So when the First Minister and Ian Blackford, the first merchant banker, Crofter, pop up and say the remainder of the UK would pay for it, I think they are misguided and frankly wrong, and it's contrary to their own policy. Thank you for clarifying that. So um, I've adeptly just closed a tab on my, lab, my tablet that would have told me if anyone had actually posted any digital questions. So I'm going to hand over to Natalie at this point and just check. Are we going to do any questions? Or... So there you have Guy Opperman's take on the state of pensions in the UK. I'm extremely grateful to him for giving such a frank and engaging interview and for his time just ahead of heading off for the parliamentary recess. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.